It's a joy to be here today at New Hope Community Church in Queensbury, right? New York. So honored to be here today. I've been in New York many, many times, and I'm always grateful for a chance to come back. My wife, Dale, and I are here actually preparatory for the beginning of the uh, New York Baptist Convention meeting, which begins, I think, tomorrow evening up at uh, Word of Life and uh, Shroon Lake. Hey, whoop, whoop. <laughs> yep. So uh, we're, we're delighted to come up, and I spoke Thursday morning. Many people don't believe this, but we have a new Baptist college in Vermont, mm. Bennington, Vermont, in mm. Bennington. Yes. And it's growing like crazy. And uh, so it's Northeastern uh, Baptist College. And so I spoke there Thursday morning, I think it was. Have been there three times and want to encourage them. Uh, my actual title is CEO of the Southern Baptist Convention. That means I'm the chief encouraging officer of the Southern Baptist Convention. And Pastor Robbie was right. Uh, we are a very different denomination. Uh, it, in fact, I like to say we are top down, but the top are the churches. And I work for you. And he's right. There are officially a little over 40, almost 47,000 Southern Baptist churches. When one includes missions and church plants and other things, right at 50,000 congregations across this country. And then partnered with uh, millions of Baptists across the world. I want to tell you thank you, first of all. That's one of the ways I encourage people is thanking you for what you do. And I want you to know today, as the pastor said, you are a part of something much bigger than yourselves. And that makes me encouraged because I do speak all over the world. And it's encouraging to know we have brothers and sisters across the world that are joining together to do the work of the Lord. Uh, For example, uh, my wife and I recently were in Germany. Now, many people would tell you that Germany has lost its way spiritually and Europe is gone. Well, let me tell you, Dale and I were in uh, a city near Cologne, Germany. There is a subgroup of Germans called Russian Germans, between five and six million. But among them are churches that are on fire for the Lord. And I mean, they have their own seminary. I went to a preaching conference that had between twelve and 1,300 preachers. 75% under 30 years of age from all over Europe. God is not done with Europe. That's right, New Hope. And guess who helps support that work, New Hope? You do. Because you're a part of a collaborative network of churches that help support that work. Just a few years ago, I was in the most unevangelized city on the North American continent. No, it's not New York City. It is not too far to the north. Montreal, Quebec, Canada. I met with 21 young French-Canadian church planters who were on fire for the Lord. One young man with whom I sat at dinner time to my left, he, his church, is, I've forgotten his name, his church in French, La Chapelle or the Chapel. One year old at that time, this was May Two years ago, one year old had 700 in attendance. Had baptized 70 people their first year. I said, son, that doesn't happen in Atlanta, Georgia. He said, well, it's happening here. People are open with the gospel. And guess who helped support that work at La Chapelle? You do, New Hope. 
I could go on and on. I was in um, December a year ago. I was in Cuba, Cuba. Spent a week there. No email, no cell phone. It was great. (laughs) I did have a missionary friend that had a phone that worked somehow, and I got to stand up on a chapel, had to hold my leg out and my mouth a certain way, and I could barely talk to Dale twice or three times whilst I was there. But while I was there, I saw a movement of God. I'm telling you, you see, communism thought it could shut down Christianity in the early 60s. And one of the ways it tried to do so was by saying, you can never build a church building. They can't have anything like this. So the people said, okay, we'll just start churches in our homes. And now in the entirety of Cuba, there are thousands of house churches. And I preach to hundreds of pastors who are on fire for the Lord. In fact, they're worried about the day when communism will fail. They said, we're afraid people will not turn to God anymore when they're no longer persecuted. Wow. I felt badly because I said, we've been praying for communism to fail. (laughs) We're not allowed to have missionaries there, so guess what? We just fly them in and out of Miami every week. And God is up to something great. And guess who helps support that work? New Hope. You do. Whether you knew it or not, you're a part of a collaborative body of believers who have joined together to do some great things for God. We have a lot to do. We have a long way to go. But thank you for what you are doing. Yes, we're Southern Baptist. And yes, that word is somewhat, um, that phrase is somewhat odd, particularly up here. And, And when I am visiting with my friend, executive director of the Minnesota Wisconsin Baptist Convention, yeah, people say, what? You're what? Dale and I on Tuesday will be in Fairbanks, Alaska for the Alaskan Baptist Convention. They're by far the most northern Baptist of anybody in the world. <laughs> but let me tell you, we're not just a southern denomination. Now, many people think we're southern and we're white. Well, guess what? Of the 50,000 congregations, 10,103 are self-designated as ethnic Over 3,000 that are primarily African-American. Over 2,000 Latino or Hispanic. Over 2,000 Asian. That's the two primary Asian groups, Korean and China, Chinese. And then there are thousands of other Asian, Native American, Messianic, deaf, you name it. Eastern European, Russian speaking, on and on and on. 10,103 of our churches are Self-designated as ethnic. That does not include the thousands of others who are multi-ethnic in their makeup. So if anyone ever says Southern Baptists are a white Southern denomination, say, no, that's not true. They're in every state in the United States, and they're far from being a white denomination. So I encourage you tonight, you hope. Thank you for listening to me as I've just shared just a little bit of what you were a part of. And I... Thank you for that. I'm grateful to be a part of that kind of work. Dale and I are here, as I told you, preparatory for the, the new, uh, what, what is it, the New York Baptist Convention that starts tomorrow evening, and we're glad. We're from Nashville, Tennessee, and I can exaggerate my southern accent if you would like, because I know how people in New York just love to laugh at us people down yonder. I can do that if you wish. But seriously, we're delighted to be here. We, we uh, have only lived there for a few years. Before that, we lived in South Carolina and Georgia primarily. And our daughters 
We have three daughters, and we have four grandsons, and we have one, praise God, as of two months ago, one granddaughter. And her name is Princess. (laughs) If she wants a Corvette when she's two, guess what she's going to (laughs) get? Whatever she wants. You know, come to think of it, that's the way it is with my grandsons too. And that's the way it is with my wife and my daughters, come to think of it. Not much is different. I, I have a shirt. They gave me one this year and I love it. It says, Papa is my name, spoiling is my game. And I love to do that. Well, that's enough of that. Anyway, three daughters and I have son-in-laws. I don't know their names. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> Never thought about asking. You know, they just don't mount to much for me. They're, none of them are good enough to marry my daughters, so I just never thought about learning their names. So I say, hey, you, move that. And because I give so much to their daughters, to my daughters, their wives, they don't mind at all. In fact, I was going to give one of them some money one time, the family, and I said to the husband, I said, do you have too much pride? I said, does this hurt you for me to give you money? He said, I have pride, but not that much. (laughs) Anyway, that's enough of that. (laughs) That's enough of that. But anyway, we are glad to be here from Nashville, Tennessee. As I told these young ladies, I'm a country singer. But no, I'm not a country singer. But anyway, everybody there seems to be. I want to begin this afternoon, this evening, with a story that I thought was really could with which you could relate if you know anything about your history in this area which most of you don't but i'm going to teach you 1755 you can remember that date can't you there was no united states of america it was prior to that time it was during a war that was fought all over upstate new york entitled the french and indian war It was a series of wars and battles that lasted for many years. And it was fought between the British and the American militia and their Indian allies against the French and their Indian allies. The war was not going well for Britain and America. So the British decided to change commanders and they brought in a young aggressive commander named Edward Braddock. And he was ambitious. And they brought him in. He met with then statesman Benjamin Franklin, and Franklin said to him, Mr. Braddock, I urge you to be very careful as you take over the British command. He said, why? He said, said, because in these colonies, the French and their Indian allies do not fight like modern European armies. They don't line up. They will ambush you. I'm warning you, Mr. Braddock, be careful. He dismissed him. Then later he talked with his aide-de-camp, which in those days was the second-in-command, and his name was Colonel George Washington, who was the head of the American militia who were attached to the British militia. And he said, Mr. Braddock, please listen to what Mr. Franklin said. The French and their Indian allies do not fight like you're accustomed to. I urge you, Mr. Braddock, to be very cautious To which Braddock said, The French and their Indian allies may be a formidable foe to your raw American militia, but to the king's regular and disciplined troops, they shall hardly be able to make an impression. I shall go take the fort over at Duquince, 
and then the fort at Frontenal, and then I shall take the fort at Niagara. And all of those are just to the north and west of here. Well, he came on February 8, 1755, and then about July 8, 1755, at about 10 o'clock in the morning, near what is modern-day Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The French and their Indian allies attacked Braddock's troops. Several thousand British, American militia, and their Indian allies. It was a horrible defeat for the British and Americans. Two out of every three British and American troops lost their lives in that one-day battle in the French and Indian War. Well, my friends, Braddock himself died just a few days later after having received a mortal wound that day. You know the moral to the story, don't you? Never underestimate the enemy. Never underestimate the enemy. I like to tell people, I was on the phone uh, last night, I think it was, with a search team of a church in Georgia seeking counsel, seeking advice. And I said to them, and they were stunned silent, I said, I know you're, you believe with all your heart that God has a plan for your church. I agree. But do you know how Satan can see his plan accomplished for your church? Oh, he's got one. Never misunderstand. He's got a plan for that church and this church and this state convention. He's got a plan for your life. He's got a plan for your family. Never underestimate the enemy. If he does what he can do to distract you, to destroy your witness, to keep you from understanding who he is, you will never experience what we find in Isaiah 6. If you allow the evil one to do what he wishes to do, you will never experience what Isaiah experienced in Isaiah 6. It's truly one of the most revolutionary passages in all of God's Word. It teaches us about worship. We know every person has their own idea of what it means to worship. We worship in our convention, by the way, in dramatically different ways. I do travel a great deal, and my wife does travel some with me, and we see worship of every style, every imaginable style. I'm telling you, I am in very contemporary churches that make this look very formal. I'm in very formal churches that still wear choir robes and sing from a thing that's called the hymnal. Now, I know you don't know what that is, but it's a book with songs in it. I'm in churches that are extremely unusual, such as biker churches. You ever heard of that? Yep. They're doing great across the nation. I'm in churches that are called cowboy churches. I did an interim pastorate not long ago of a church in Greenville, South Carolina area, so I could be close to my daughter, and, and whatever the husband's name, I don't know. <laughs> One of the churches that church had planted was a cowboy church. Yes, you know the name of it? Happy Trails Baptist Church. <laughs> they don't say amen. What do they say? That's right. That's right. The ushers wear spurs. You got to watch out. If you don't give enough, they'll get you. We have student churches. We have every kind of church. And everybody has their own ideas about worship and about what it is. 
Can you imagine? And by, by the way, I know this has never happened in New York State. But people in the South actually argue over worship styles. Huh? I know it's never happened up here. You're much too mature for things such as this. But people argue about worship styles. They really do. It's, it's unbelievable. Can you imagine Jesus and his disciples sitting around the campfire and saying, you know, I wonder which one's right. Capernaum contemporary or Galilean gospel or Tiberian tradition or Judean jazz. I don't think they sat around arguing about those things, but we do. I have a little news flash for you. God doesn't really care about your opinion. If that hurts your feelings, you just have to get over it. And I have an opinion too, and mine is right. But he doesn't care about mine either. My friends, you see what happens in worship is not about how, but who. It's not what style, it's how you worship him. One of the greatest needs of our day is for our people to engage in genuine worship. Genuine worship, where lives are changed from the inside out and where people experience that which Isaiah experienced in Isaiah 6. You see, genuine worship calls for an absolute active response of participation rather than some kind of passive attendance at a place of prayer. Turn with me to Isaiah 6. We're going to look at one of the greatest experiences in all of God's Word, and it'll be on the screen. It's a wonderful text. And it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I, I who? I, Isaiah, saw the Lord. Now, y'all, you could stop right there and say, what? He saw the Lord? Now, that's a worship experience right there, isn't it? I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And what does it say about him? The train of his robe filled the temple. And above it, what? The throne were six seraphim. And each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to the other and said, I'll shout at this one. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and the whole earth is filled with his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken, and the house was filled with smoke. When's the last time you went to church and the place shook and filled with smoke? So I said, woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it, and he said, look at this. This is so powerful. This is what you hope will happen every time you come before the Lord. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. And also heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for me? My friends, I will tell you this evening, Isaiah had one of the greatest experiences of his life, and you can too. 
He had an experience that changed him. And you can too. He met the Lord when he worshipped. You can too. And it may be a private experience just between you and God. It may be a public experience where you're gathered with brothers and sisters from all over. But you can have the same kind of experience that Isaiah did. And there are four things quickly that happen, and I shall not go on long. I'm unlike some preachers. I stop when I run out of what I know, and I'm not very smart, so I finish up pretty quickly. (laughs) Some preachers seem to go on long after they've stopped what they know, but I don't. I, I will stop. First of all, there was contemplation, meditation, pondering, as we say down south. He was pondering on these things. And what happened? Look at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, he contemplates. He sees the Lord. Now, what does it mean in the year that King Uzziah died? He was a king of Israel. He died. And if you'll study other scriptural words about Uzziah, you will see that he started as a good king. Now, in the kings of Israel and Judah... Many started good and stayed good. A few did. Many started bad and got worse. Some started good and then went bad. Uzziah did. He started as a good king. He did what was right. He was good and strong. He followed the ways of the Lord. But about midway of his reign, something began to change inside of him. And it sounded to me like he became like some American politicians. He began thinking he had the right to do whatever he wanted to do. He began thinking that it was all about him. You know, in the temple, don't you, if you've studied it, and some of you have, some of you may not have, but the temple was found, of course, in Jerusalem. And then the inner, inner part of the temple, there were two places, very special places. One was called the holy place, and it was separated by a huge, thick curtain from that which was on the inner, inner part called the Holy of Holies. And it's where God made his dwelling place in Israel. And the high priest was allowed to go inside the Holy of Holies one day a year on the Day of Atonement where he would symbolically go in and offer up a sacrifice for the sins of the nation. This is not in the Bible. It's, it's, it's a Jewish anecdotal belief that they would actually tie a rope around his leg so that if he died while he was in there, they're going to pull him out because they're not going to go in and get him. Because they believe that if you see God, what happens to you? You're going to die. And they were not about to go in unbidden without permission. So that's just, we don't know if that's actually true, but... Some say they actually had a rope they would tie around his leg to bring him out in case, down south we would say, in case he had a spell, they could just pull him out. A spell, that's, that's a word you have to understand. Actually in south you have to say it with two or three syllables, a spell. Yeah. Isaiah got to thinking, you know, I'm the king. I can do whatever I want to do. And you know what he did? He goes into the holy of holies. He usurped the position of the high priest and goes into the Holy of Holies. He comes out leprous, with leprosy, and died a horrendous, 
painful death thereafter. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah sees the Lord. He goes to the temple. Scholars will say it seems as if he was in the regular habit of so doing. And he goes into the temple and he experiences God like he never had before. In the year that King Uzziah died. And oh, by the way, he, he, had, he had a little bit of problem of hero worship with Uzziah. So he's brokenhearted, he is disappointed, he's hurt, and he goes to church, and God shows up. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. High and lifted up. So as he contemplates this scene... The earthly temple fades away and he has given the privilege of looking into heaven itself. My friends, that is what's supposed to happen when you worship the Lord in the morning or in the evening when you study and pray. You are given the privilege to look a little bit into heaven. And when we worship together and we sing and we pray, guess what? You are given the privilege of seeing a little bit of what heaven is like. Wow! In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Wow. And around him above that throne were six seraphim. Oh my goodness. These strange and yet angelic beings. But in dramatic language, he talks about attendants that are so powerful that their shouting shook the land, the building shook, and the place filled with smoke. And he senses this presence of God. Oh, my friends, I just ask you tonight, how aware are you of the presence of the Lord? Is he real to you? We live in a world that's desperately in need of our Lord And of God's people who show that when they worship privately and corporately, they have been with God. And the people sense that holy awe around you. Not because of you, but because you have been in contact with the mighty creator. And you can say, there's nothing special about me, but I've seen the Lord. And he touched me. He contemplated this and it began to change him quickly. There was the element of confession. There was the conviction of sin. There was the conviction of sin. Before the entranced eye of Isaiah there in verse 2, he sees these angelic forms. He saw the fire. He heard the smoke. He heard the seraphim song as they cried out, What? Holy, 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 the thrice holy God. And the whole earth is filled with his glory, not just the temple. The place shook. Even the angelic beings had unusual affectations about them. Meaning what? They had six wings. With two they did cover their face. Why? We can't look at God. You look at God, you're going to die, son. And with two they did cover their feet. Why? Because the feet have touched the ground and the ground is dirty and we would never come into the presence of God with dirtiness. Ooh, there's a lot there, isn't there? And with two they did fly. 
And they're singing about the thrice holy God. And with holy awe, there was an honest confession on the part of young Isaiah. He felt unworthy to stand. This honest confession there in verse 5, he said, God, I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man. Look what happened to my hero Uzziah when he came into your presence. What's going to happen to me? I'm a dead man. Woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He said, I'm a dead man. For mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Verse 5. There was a need of confession. There was unresolved guilt that disrupted his fellowship with God. My friends, every time we come to worship, yes, we must contemplate the greatness of God. But we must also confess our sins and say, God, I don't deserve to be in your presence. Your pastor rightly said a while ago that we don't have any perfect people in this church. Let me tell you something. We're all broken. We're all broken. You know, there are social clubs around here. You have to say how good you are to get into. Do you know what it takes to get into this church? Just tell them how bad you are. And they say, welcome. One more. We're all sinners and we need to confess that before our Lord. And until we're willing to do so, we have not worshipped. Third, there's the element of cleansing. Third is the element of cleansing. Look at verse 6 and 7. You see, God is eager to forgive. Didn't our Lord Jesus affirm in John three seventeen that God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but through Him the world might be saved? Well, my friends, here is the element of cleansing. Our God does not delight in your suffering. Though there is an, an agony that comes as we recognize our sinfulness, as we admit our sin, we know that we have sinned against God. As I've witnessed to so many people over the years, sometimes on airplanes, sometimes in homes, wherever it might be. You know, I have found that even the roughest of people know they're sinners. Hey, they know it. You don't have to preach at them and point it out to them. They know. They'll tell you. We all need forgiveness. But God says, I stand ready to forgive. Symbolic of that, these angelic creatures, odd though they may be, they go to this altar, they take a live coal with tongs because they cannot touch it. And they bring it symbolically to his lips and touch his lips. And you say, why'd they touch him there? What had he just confessed? That he was a man of unclean lips and he dwelt among a people of unclean lips. So at the point of need, the forgiveness was applied. You hear me? At the point of need, the forgiveness was applied. And there was the agony of uncleanliness, but there was the joy of being clean. Oh, my friends, if you do not worship and experience the cleansing of God, you've wasted God's time because you've not worshipped. There was the joy of Of being clean. And I will tell you next. This cleansing was free. This cleansing was full. And it was forever. Isaiah. Went to church. 
and experience the touch of God. But there's one last thing. And if this doesn't happen, you've wasted God's time and you've wasted your time. And when you worship privately or corporately, if this does not happen, worship was not complete. Now you might go away and say, oh, I was blessed today. Well, bless your heart. What did you do with it? You see, there's the element of commitment. There's the element of commitment to the call. There's the element of consecration. You see, the whole picture is complete. When verse 8, we see, and we see there the Lord saying, Whom will I send? i got a message. i got something I need done. Who's going to go do it? And I believe with a timid, shy hand, Isaiah said, Lord, I, I wouldn't use me, but if you want to, I'm available. Because God, I've experienced cleansing. And I've been to church. And I know, I know that it's about you. And I should never have had so, Uzziah so high. But now I realize, Lord, you're the one high and lifted up. You see, the throne of Israel was empty. But the throne of God was not empty. Listen carefully to me. In about 50 days, we're going to have a new president of the United States. And some of you are already shaking your heads. And I know what you're thinking. And you're right. We're in trouble. But God is still on his throne. Listen to me. Isaiah 6 is still applicable. God is still on his throne. And he's still looking for somebody to go and share the message. Who will go? Whom shall I send? And Isaiah said, Lord, here am I. Would you send me? Oh, my friends, you see, Isaiah made no effort to escape the call. He said, Lord, here I am. Send me. And when we do that, worship is complete. When we do that, worship occurs in its fullness and finality. There was contemplation, there was confession, there was cleansing, but ultimately there was commitment. As God said, who will go? And he said, I will. Oh, my friends, listen carefully to me. Are you listening? If we're to worship the way God wants us to worship, then our, the enemy will know, you don't have a chance in my family. You don't have a chance in my life. You don't have a chance in this church because we know how to worship and we're in touch with the living Lord God. And we've experienced His touch and He's changed us. And we've got a whole congregation of people saying, I'll go. You see, when that happens... Have you ever heard someone say, it probably doesn't happen in New York, because y'all are so mature, right? (laughs) Pastor, do I have to do that? Oh, then you have people say, do I get to do that? You see, Christianity leaves leaves off the have to and it starts getting to the get to. I get to go. I get to do. Because I've worshipped the Lord. Wow. How powerful. How wonderful. When God's people focus on Him and worship Him, He changes us from the inside out. Pray with me.
Father God, in Jesus' name, I thank you so much for this time. I thank you for this precious passage. Father, I pray that there would be men and women, boys and girls, here this evening, changed by you. Not by being Southern Baptist, not by being members or part of New Hope, but being touched by you. So, Lord God, I pray right now that everyone here would understand the personal nature of this message for them. We love you. We thank you for this opportunity. We commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen.